0: this week on Writers Inc.
1: It's funny, I would say I used to, I used to be like, you know what, I'm just gonna write and then let everybody else worry about the other stuff, you know? And and as we talked about a little bit, it's, you can't do that. I mean, I suppose you can, I guess it depends on what you want out of your career.
0: Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's
2: Ink. All right, JD. Here we are back for episode number seven already. It's hard to believe, isn't it?
3: Yeah, we're we're practically at a hundred. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, the, it's just like writing, though. You know, you you write a you, you write a little bit, you write a little bit, and and you know, you turn around, and you've got like a, a manuscript, and here we are, and you know, we've got seven episodes already.
3: Yeah, and I'm, it's really cool to go back and listen to them, too, and just um, just kind of feel it building. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I like it. It's, it's a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll give uh, our listeners a little peek behind the curtain. I've uh, looked at some podcast analytics over the years, and I've, I feel pretty confident that, that we're starting off really strong just based on raw numbers that I'm seeing in the dashboard. So we're, we're both pretty encouraged with this as well.
3: Yeah, a number of different countries, too. That kind of surprised me. It's, it's not just the U.S. and, and U.K., but it's, you know, a lot of people listening all over the place.
2: Yeah, yeah, it really is. A, it's a different world. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I think we're about the same age. And I can remember as a kid, you know, having pen pals overseas and writing letters, airmail. And, and like now we have people listening to us talk all over the world.
3: Oh, yeah. No, I, I actually remember when the internet kind of first made its appearance in the, the business world. And, you know, I think Yahoo was probably the primary search engine at the time. There was AltaVista and the, and, a, and a couple other ones. But, like, I remember the first visual web pages, like, because I was using, um, you know, they, they were sort of like chat rooms at the time right, um, to communicate with other people. Um, you know, and then that eventually evolved into email. But then all of a sudden, you know, like you could load up an actual web page with graphics. And like, none of that was really that long ago. You know, no, this was, it wasn't. you know, the, the '90s. I mean, I, time seems to go by faster and faster, but you know, it, it feels like it wasn't that long ago at all. It's it's crazy how this technology has just changed everything.
2: It really is. I mean, people joke about the AOL CDs that came out, and I I kind of chuckle. I'm like AOL CDs. I was on CompuServe before AOL. <laughs>
3: Um, it, it, it's funny when like i still have a lot of friends that still use aol like they still have their email address with aol right? and yeah and some of them still pay aol which <laughs> i always thought was funny because i remember about 10 years ago somebody told me you know because aol used to charge i think it was like 10 dollars a month or 15 dollars a month or whatever to be a you know a member um but then you know the internet basically broke and you didn't need them anymore to do that but they kept charging people and you know all you had to do was call aol up and say hey i don't want to pay you anymore and then they would just turn off billing but you got to you got to keep everything. <laughs> You got to keep your, your email address and everything else. But like a lot of people didn't actually make that phone call. Um, and I was working in the finance world at the time and AOL for the longest time was one of the strongest tech stocks out there. Right? And you know, if you, if you own that, you know, you, you were doing pretty good, you know, and then Yahoo came out and some of these other ones and that little upstart called Amazon showed up and, um, but yeah, things, things moved ridiculously fast.
2: <laughs> well, speaking of moving ridiculously fast, uh, I am so curious to hear you talk a little bit about this new book project you got going on Uh, before we, before we introduce our guest today, you have a new book coming out in March called She Has a Broken Wing Where Her Heart Should Be. And I'd love to hear about it.
3: You were close. It's called She Has a Broken Thing Where Her Heart Should Be. Um, And my my agent wanted me to change that because it's such a mouthful, but um, it it was, that book kind of came around in a, a weird sort of way. Like pretty much everything that I've written so far takes place over a very short amount of time, you know, like whether it's a couple days or a couple hours, I even have a novella out there that takes place over a minute. Um, so I've never written anything that took place over a long period of time. Um so after I finished up the 4M K series I, I really needed to kind of flush my head out because when you write about serial killers for three novels like <laughs> there there's some nasty stuff floating around in there so you kind of need to scrub your brain out a little bit. Um so I wanted to write something different. So th- this book actually takes place over um almost the entire lifetime of the main character. He starts off and he's 4 years old and it goes up until his 40s. Oh. Um and it, it was a really cool story to write. It's very different for me. So people are either going to love it or they're going to hate it. I'm really not sure. Um, I'm kind of chasing a, a younger audience, I think, with this one. I, I think it's, it's something that you know fans of Stranger Things and, and maybe even young adults might, might like or appreciate a little bit more than some of my other novels. Um, from a publication standpoint, I'm doing it a little bit differently. I'm kind of following the same model that I did with um, The Six Wicked Child. Um, which with this being a a business podcast, might as well go into a little bit of detail there. Um, but with, with that book, I had an offer from my publisher to put it out, my U S publisher, but I, I turned that down and I ended up using my own small press to put out all the English speaking territories. So the U S the UK, uh, Canada, I actually put those out on my own, but then my agents went out there and they sold all the foreign rights in, in the other territories, um, and you know, I wasn't sure how that was going to play out, like whether you know, all the different publishers would even want to participate in something like that. But it, it actually sold really well, like from the foreign side, they, it, it really made no difference to them. They didn't care at all. Um, so the only thing that changed from my standpoint is I gave up a big advance check uh, for basically a higher payout on, on each copy sold. Um, and, and it's working out phenomenally well. And I I think that this might be a model that, you know, I know I'm going to continue doing at least with certain books moving forward. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see other authors doing it, um, with, with broken thing, I, I, I primarily did it more from a timing standpoint because we had a traditional publisher that wanted to put it out and they gave me a great offer. Um, but it it wouldn't have come out until uh, August. And I've got another book coming out in September. Um, one of the ones that I co-wrote with uh, James Patterson. So I, I can't change that date. Um, and I really want to get in front of my audience on a regular basis. So I think moving forward, I, I write about two to three books a year. Um, so I'm, I'm going to continue to mix it up. I think I'm going to you know indie publish some titles while I'm still traditionally publishing other ones um, so that I can control that timing. So this particular book is coming out in March. The next one with Patterson comes out in September. I'll make sure I've got another new release coming out next March and just kind of continue that. Um, because when you work with traditional publishers, you really have zero control over over those dates. Right. Um, and with Broken Thing, we, we ran into it even on the audio side. I, I, we came very close to a, um, an Audible original deal. Um, they, they wanted that book for, for an Audible original, and I really wanted to do that with them because it's something I've been talking to Audible about for a while now. Um, but they weren't able to get it out fast enough. Um, it, it, we were looking at maybe um, May or, or June or, or something like that. And again, that would be too close to my other release. Um, so we ended up going with recorded books, which have, they've been great for me. They've, they've done a bunch of my, my other novels. Um, so they're they're doing the audiobook for this one, and they're able to stick with that that March date that I had. Um, which is nice. I'm finding players and people that are are willing to be flexible on that kind of thing. Um, you know, and with today's, you know, landscape and publishing is changing so fast. It's nice to have partners out there that are willing to do that.
2: Yeah, that's great. And we're going to have a link in the show notes because uh, you have it on pre-order so people can go and grab it right now and it'll show up on their Kindle in March. Uh, you also have a hardcover available. Um, so are are you hoping to have an audio version sort of around the same time then?
3: Yeah, it's all coming out the same day. I mean, ah. I, I always follow the same model that I, I would with a traditional publisher. So March 31st of this year, um, we've got the the hardcover coming out, the ebook comes out, the audio book is going to come out. Um, I may release a paperback at the same time, just to try and keep the price point a little bit lower. Um, because it, it's it's a big book. It's almost 800 pages. Wow. It's a long one. Okay. Um, so from a price pricing standpoint, the hardcover, I think, came out to about $39, which is a little bit pricey. Um, I can do a paperback for half that. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I think Traditional publishers are still kind of hanging on to is you know they come out with their hardcover then six months later they come out with the paperback and they kind of follow that same model, um, but they're really selling to different people. You know, like I buy a lot of hardcovers, I, but I, I I don't particularly go out and buy soft covers. Other people prefer soft covers, but very few people are going to ever buy both. Um, so I don't necessarily see the point in delaying that release of a soft cover. Um, so like with this one and even with Six Wicked Child, I put out the paperback the same day that the hardcover came out to give people that flexibility. If they want to spend a little bit less, but they still want a print copy, you know, they've, they've got the ability to to go ahead and pick that up. Um, hardcover can be a little bit tricky when when you're indie publishing, and I think a lot of people gloss over that. They they just go ahead and put the soft cover out through KDP, and they just let it go. Um, but it is possible to put a hardcover out. And I, I I did this one through Ingram Spark, um, which is one of the big distributors out there. They do a lot of the you know the, the regular publishers too. Um, and I also have a contract that I worked out with on um, Baker and Taylor, which is another. It's basically the only other large distributor of hardcovers out there, and they focus primarily on libraries. Um, but between the two, you know, like from a book buying standpoint, whether you're a library or a bookstore or whatever, um, you know, it's, it's available to everybody just as if it had come out from Random House, um, which, again, is the, is the model I tend to, to follow.
2: Yeah. Excellent. All right, man. Well, that's good. You'll have to kind of keep us updated as as we hit, you know, work towards March and let us know how the additions are, are working and, you know, what's sort of happening as far as the foreign rights and stuff. But uh, it's going to be exciting to kind of follow that and see what happens.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Great. All right, so our guest for episode number seven is Mr. Paul Tremblay.
3: Paul's the math, the math teacher, the math teacher that could, yes. um, it, it's such a crazy dynamic. Like I can't pick, like I, I I'm such a fan of his writing. It's very difficult for me to picture him in front of a classroom teaching calculus, but yes. you know, there, there it is. You yeah. Know, every, everybody's got that life before and, yeah. and that was his and, and, and now he's managing to do both, which is really cool.
2: Yeah. It's as someone who's, I, I didn't teach AP calculus, but I, I taught at the high school level and I can't, um, you know, it's so difficult to do anything but teach. Like you just come home, like emotionally exhausted. I can't imagine how Paul's finding the time to write and and writing these books like The Cabin at the End of the World and Head Full of Ghosts and just like these stunning, great horror novels. I'm just in awe of this guy.
3: Yeah, I mean Stephen King. I think in on writing or somewhere he he said you've got a lifetime to write the first book and six months for the second one, <laughs> um and and he's kind of in that cycle right now. So yeah, I'm I'm curious to hear how he's he's balancing everything and and holding it all together.
2: Great. Well, why don't we get into the interview? Uh, we'll, we'll listen to what Paul has to say and then we'll come back on the flip side and talk about some of those takeaways. I was thinking, you know, the it's been four years since i talked to you and the last time i talked to you uh, it was the uh day after halloween and you had gone uh trick-or-treating as les claypool you remember that
0: <laughs> uh yeah wow
1: yeah i mean i was supposed to be uh i was supposed to be quints, but yes i remember that i remember that costume well <laughs>
2: oh so has that made a return That's into your funny. halloween wardrobe at all at any point in the past no i've years?
1: thought about it but like the last few october is like i was always like if i was gonna do that costume again i would want to make sure like i have like bushier sideburns and <laughs> but uh like i was traveling to england it's like ah, i can't do this costume and then like show up you know looking <laughs> like a bad less claypool or uh, So <laughs> no, i haven't i will i will I'll definitely probably will redo it but haven't yet
2: Nice, nice, and, and there's nothing that says you can't do less claypole either. I mean, you this do have true, that option, right? Yeah,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that'd be a deeper cut. costume, yeah. I guess.
2: Yeah, for sure. I got, uh, I got. I'm so excited to talk to you, man. It's been a while, and uh, you always have great things going on. And I, I thought maybe we could kind of start getting the ball rolling. Because uh, I, I, I remember uh, reading this in real time. I want to read it back to you and just kind of get your thoughts on it. Uh, okay, here it is. Uh, a Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay scared the living hell out of me, and I'm pretty hard to scare. So take me yeah. back to that. And what was August. that?
1: And... <laughs> you mean August 19th, 2019, uh, 25- <laughs> 2015, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that was a couple of months after Head Full of Ghosts had been published. Uh, you know, I had, I had tried sending a book to Stephen King, the book came out in June. Um, you know, and his uh, personal assistant, who's very nice, was, you know, honest with me. He's like, hey, you know, if he gets a random book, I put it in a, this big office slash room and there's hundreds of books and he walks through every once in a while and takes out a book. So the odds are he probably won't read it. But uh, but then I had a couple of friends, uh, acquaintances uh, slash acquaintances who said, hey, you know, who are friends of Stephen?" And they both recommended the book to him, which was, you know, so nice of them. So... But, you know, then it was like a few months go by, I hadn't heard anything. I was like, ah, you know, he's so busy, who knows, you know, if he read it or maybe he didn't like it. So now it's, you know, as I mentioned, late August, school's approaching. Uh, I was actually moving furniture in my house because we just bought like a new dining room table and it was really hot out. And I was very cranky because no one likes to move furniture. And <laughs> uh, Yeah, I was, you know, it was probably like around 7 p.m. My phone just started blowing up, as they say, because uh, friends had seen him tweet that before I did, so. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit that I, you know, I got teary-eyed, I got emotional. I mean, yeah. I became a reader, a reader because of Stephen King. Never mind a writer. Um, you know, so I stopped what I was doing, just put my laptop out on the kitchen counter, went to the refrigerator and grabbed some beers, and uh, basically just had like a one-man party the rest of the night, just watching people react to the tweet. It was really cool.
2: Yeah, that's phenomenal. I, I I can't even imagine what that, you know, what that must have felt like. Uh, please tell me like at some point you like screen grabbed it, framed it, it's hanging in your office somewhere. Do you have that tweet <laughs> anywhere?
1: Uh, actually I have, uh, I haven't framed it, but I've printed it out and you know, it's in my, it hangs in my classroom. Uh, you know, with
2: a couple other ones too. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah he he has, uh, he, he's tweeted a few more times about your books, which is amazing. Oh, he's right? been, yeah,
1: he's been super generous, super supportive. Yeah. I can't, can't thank him enough.
2: Yeah. I, I've heard, I, I've been, uh, talking to a few writers, you know, doing this podcast and, uh, you know, like Mallerman kind of had the same reaction, you know, when, when, uh, he tweeted Josh's book. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, um, it's really amazing that a guy of that stature uh, and that level of prestige is still willing to kind of help out, or you know, the writers who are, who are coming on board, like the next generation. I think that's a, you know, really generous thing for him to do.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, even like uh, after, uh, after his, you know, tweet of my book, you know, I reached out to his assistant and uh, he emailed me back himself, you know, and I thanked him and he was like, Oh, Hey, you, know, you should read the little stranger by Sarah Waters." So like even like a personal email, he was, you know give me a, a recommendation for a book, you know, that I yeah. might like. So, yeah. Yeah, no, he's super generous.
2: Yeah. Excellent, excellent. You had mentioned you have it hanging in your classroom and uh <laughs> I, I I wonder if you if uh, if you're willing to to talk about this a little for a little bit because I realize that um you're one of the only other people in the world who's probably understands uh, at least how I feel a little bit because I I think you started teaching at a private day school in like 1994, 1995 roughly.
1: Yeah, 9596.
2: 9596. Yeah. 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 So, um, can you tell us a little bit about that and and what you do during the day?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been at the same school. It's a it's a small private school, all boys. Um, you know, I got the job right out of grad school. Uh, you know, so it was what like 23, 24. Um, yeah. And so I mean, because if it's a small, I teach math, so I typically have four classes. Um, you know, at this point I teach a lot of geometry and calculus, um, and the calculus classes that I teach meet more frequently than the other ones. So, you know, that gets a little bit busy, but because it's such a small school, you know, they also expect a lot of the faculty, you either have to coach a couple of sports or, you know, moderate clubs. And, you know, so for years and years, I've been the, the junior varsity basketball coach. Um, and I was doing that <laughs> as ridiculous as it sounds because I never played. Uh, that eighth grade football head coach like the last 10 plus years. It was just a function of me being, you know, starting off as like the fifth assistant and outlasting everybody else. Uh, But this year I lost the football because my daughter is playing varsity soccer. You know, I'm not going to miss her games for, you know, eighth grade football games. Right. So my school let me me start a creative writing club this year, which has been fun. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't start messing around with writing until I started teaching. So, I mean, to me, they both been, you know, severely, you know, linked, intertwined, you know, to the point where, you know, of course, you know, I wouldn't mind giving a go of writing full time. But, you know, there's a big part of me that would be nervous. It's like, well, I've never done that before. You know, I've always, you know, had, you know, the teaching schedule to work around, you know, so now I sort of know the rhythms of the year and, you know, when I can get a lot of work done and when it's just me trying to steal a little bit here and there. I don't know. And being around the kids, I think, is a real help, you know, they keep you sort of, they keep you honest yeah they keep you grounded they uh it's also just a great lesson in voice like hearing you know how the kids talk i don't know especially in my school you know, the slang is really heavy it's in school specific it feels like um you know and how it changes every few years uh so as a writer it's like oh, how you anyway, know that's like a wealth of material to work with
2: yeah for sure uh, it's funny you said that too and in the late 1990s, I was at a private school in New Jersey and I was teaching U.S. history and I ended up coaching fifth and sixth grade lacrosse and I had never picked up a lacrosse stick in my life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> So I know how that feels. Uh, but, yeah, but you've been at the same school th- the entire time. I mean, uh, right. you you must feel pretty comfortable there and, and it's a, a pretty good thing for you.
1: No, definitely. I mean, uh, I really enjoy the people I work with. A lot of them have been there for, for a long time and... I don't know. In some ways I'm not a creature of change. (laughs) Yeah. I like things to stay the same. Yeah, so, you know, I've been there for so long. Like I know, you know, most of the classes that I've taught, I've taught before. So I have a lot of material to pull from and, you know, it saves me a little bit on, you know, uh, class preparation, just having been doing a lot of the same classes for a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a comfort in just knowing the place, knowing the kids, knowing the school, um, you know, my, my son got to go there for free which was a huge bonus he just right. graduated last year oh nice so now it's been a huge part of my life uh, mm-hmm. you know it does feel weird I do feel uh because I am like I, I was gonna say I feel like I'm living like a dual life because <laughs> I sort of am living a dual life because you know the the teaching and the writing really don't overlap at all maybe this year for the first time now that I'm doing the creative writing club
2: now I uh, when I was teaching in a private school I used a pen name and I and I really I I didn't actively hide it, but I didn't, I wasn't very open with the faculty and with the the community, but you, you are very comfortable with that. So how, how did that um, evolve given the fact that you started teaching and then tried this thing writing and, and, you know, how has the community accepted that?
1: Yeah, it's fine. I guess way back when I first started, I uh, thought I might have to use a pen name and I came up with a really terrible one ash murtaugh <laughs> uh, murtaugh is my mother's uh you know maiden name uh but you know i i never ended up using it and i don't know i always felt like you know as a math teacher it's not like i'm handing my books out to the kids you know or presenting i always feel like you know i'm sort of i'm okay there i mean the books are out there they exist and no i, I will say my school has been very great about you know not like sort of prying into the books and just because you know something you know horrific you know exists in the book you know they don't come back and be like hey you know what is this stuff they've been very supportive and you know even allow me to do you know stuff here and there during the year you know miss a few days because I'm going to a convention or something so that you know they have been very supportive I don't know I'd like to hope that they think it's cool that they have a you know a math teacher who's now actually you know publishing pretty well and I don't know hopefully it's a good role model for the kids that you know you can follow your passion, even if it's not related to necessarily the job that you're doing. The whole idea of being a, a lifelong learner, you know, our school talks about that all the time. So uh, yeah, uh, it is strange, you know, uh, I know there are some like sort of English faculty who you know, maybe don't know what quite to think of me or, you know, there's <laughs> maybe some, or, you know, there's still sort of the genre stigma. Yeah. But, oh yeah, this is nice. You know, I've had you know, well-meaning faculty say, even in like the recent past, like, oh, it's so great that your hobby is doing well. Like, yes, my hobby. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I mean, I think that's also just like the general population response to when you hear that someone writes horror, you know, so that's its own extra stuff that goes along with it. Yeah, there's baggage. Uh, There's baggage Yeah, Mm -hmm. But I I will say, so, I mean, when A Head Full of Ghosts came out, I was initially a little bit nervous because the book is very critical, I would think, of, of the Catholic Church, at least in how it's sort of uh, how, you know, how, you know, through the centuries it's performed exorcisms on, you know, people who essentially are ex- exhibiting, because I don't believe people are possessed by demons. Um, you know, I think these are people who are exhibiting symptoms of mental Ill- of mental illness, you know, and, you know, uh, the church has conflated that for centuries. So, you know, the book is critical of that. I was a little worried initially because my school is a Catholic school um you know that they'd be mad about the book but they haven't been (laughs) like i said uh like even last year like a uh, ap creative writing teacher actually assigned the book to his classes which was a lot of fun oh wow my son my son was in that class so (laughs) he he forced my son to read my book so i'm extremely thankful because it was a it was a wonderful experience because my son cole isn't a big horror fan at all um and those are some really cool conversations that we got to have about the book. So yeah, that's very, great. Very, very, very thankful for that. Um, yeah. So, you know, in my classroom now I've got, you know, I've got all sorts of stuff that I've printed out of, of things about my own books, but also, you know, re- you know, King posters and stuff. So, you know, I'm definitely sort of the, the weird horror writing math teacher <laughs> at school. And, and I, I get a lot more questions from parents during parent teacher conference and they've all been like, you know, really nice questions, you know, enthusiastic about, Oh, how's that work? And, stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. So far, knock on wood, so good.
2: <laughs> good, good. What does it look like for you as far as splitting your time or your responsibilities? I mean, I know, you know, depending summer could be a whole different instance, but uh, say during the academic year, uh, how do you get your writing done? What's that look like on a day-to-day basis?
1: So typically for me, the fall and winter are the busiest school-wise because that's when I've had to coach usually as well, uh, especially in winter with basketball. So I, I treat the fall and winter as if I can get stuff done, then it's, it's not quite a bonus, but it's, I don't put so much pressure on myself to, to produce during those busiest months. You know, when I'm working on a novel, I, I, have, a, I have a goal of 500 words per day, but honestly, uh, especially in the fall and winter, I know that I'm gonna miss that a few days a week. Um, you know, so the last book that I wrote that, that's coming out in July you know, I probably only got like six or 7,000 words a month for most of the fall. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit more in December because I get a couple of weeks off. Um, but for so for me, like the spring and summer become the months where I really have to, you know, buckle down and take advantage. But I still I try to make sure I'm doing something related to writing every day. You know, sometimes it's I get, you know, the fall, is it's worked out that the fall is usually like uh, where I get my edits and copy edits from the publisher. So that usually takes over like a week or two. Um yeah, so I don't know. If I think about it like big picture, it gets too overwhelming. So I really just try to focus on the day-to-day stuff. Like, you know, can I squeeze an hour out here or there? And usually it's at, you know, it's at night. Um, you know, and then I can hopefully ramp things up in the spring and uh, summer. And this summer, actually, I wrote more than I have in. Might have been the most I've ever written for one book in the summer. Like I was actually a little bit worried. I was I was a little bit behind schedule, uh, partly because I wrote like an Amazon, novelette. I took a couple of months off from the novel to write that for Amazon. Um, but yeah, I was able to really write a lot more than I usually do for for June and July, which is kind of good just to know that I could do that. I mean, I felt like that might, might have even been like a snapshot of what I could do if I was a full-time writer. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. What about the marketing and business side of stuff? Where do you fit that in?
1: That's a great question. Uh, you know, I try to stay active. I, I've been, Cutting back from Facebook, uh, and, and really for months now, and I plan to cut back more. It's just I don't know. It's a time suck, and it feels like a less happy place than something like uh, Instagram, where I've really come to enjoy Instagram. And there's a lot of like the book Instagrammers, you know, uh, are, are there, and I feel like I've gotten a relationship, you know, with a bunch of those people now. It's just fun to like. I like making book recommendations on Instagram. You know, it just seems like a more positive, you know, for for my own writing stuff, not like life stuff where we're talking about politics or other things that may affect your day to day. But just in terms of the writing, uh, I found Instagram to be great. And it's just fun to, you know, because you're posting a picture every day or every two days. It doesn't sort of take over your life. Um, Well, I've been uh, active on Twitter as well. You know, on the other side of things is doing events and doing podcasts. And, you know, for, for the longest time, it's like, I you know, I would try not to say no to anything, but I know this this uh, from July to really through the end of October, it was kind of nuts. <laughs> um, it was it, it, I mean a, a, an amazing problem to have, but you know, a lot of it were just like local events. But I did a ton of you know, podcasts and, you know, Skyping into college classes and, you know, and I want to do that because I, I kind of feel like all that stuff helps, you know, just being approachable and, um, you know, wanting to talk to readers. Um, but it does take away like I, I really didn't get any writing done for the last couple of months. Aside from the edits for my novel Survivor Song, I mean that's a big chunk of writing. So I, I should right. say I didn't write anything new for these.
2: Past no first months. drafting.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know I'm, I'm starting to feel anxious about that.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that
1: uh, you know that I that I haven't you know gotten you know any sort of original stuff done. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about what the next book is, and I've been tinkering with trying to write a screenplay, but um, I don't know. Like I don't know if I would want to replicate how busy that fall was again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had some travel too, which again was amazing. I was, you know, went to Houston for the first time. I got to go to Scotland for the first time. You know, and I I wouldn't say no to those things. I mean, travel, I don't think I'd ever have a hard time saying no to that. But, you know, it is a hard balance. I mean, it's stuff I'm trying to figure out. Like, you know, again, it's it's an amazing problem to have. I didn't think I would ever have this problem, but, you know, it is, you know, hard. It's getting harder for me to find the balance between work and now, you know, the, the writing life, you know, besides the writing, but the promotion side of it, which you kind of still have to do. I mean, even, you know, when you assume like the people like, you know, Josh or like uh, Katsu. I mean, if you talk to anyone who's got a book out with a bigger publisher, you still, you still have to do a lot of the promotion yourself. You can't, you can't sit there and just expect that the publisher is going to do it for you because it just doesn't work that way. They have, uh, you know, your publisher, you know, is, is you know, is, much might that they have behind them they still you know they have their publicists and and marketing people but it's not like you're the only author that publicist has or that you know they've got i don't know probably 30 or more i mean at at least so you know there's that was a a a little bit of a wake up (laughs) was to realize you know i feel like i learned the hard way too with the first go around with big publishers that didn't work out so well that you still have to do a lot of your own. Publishing or not publishing a lot of your own uh, publicity.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's that's an interesting place to go then to maybe talk about what's your relationship with Inkwell and, and sort of how does, you know, how have they helped your career, um, your, your second life maybe your other life.
1: Sure. Uh, well, I know I'm very fortunate that I've had the same literary agent, as Ms. Stephen Barber, since 2006, and I know that's highly unusual. Uh, I have many friends many successful friends who've had to change or felt like they had to change agents midstream and it's and I know that's super hard but it's not impossible and it, and it happens really frequently um, so I've been lucky with Stephen like I, I've even followed him place to place because when I first signed up with him he was at Donald Moss and then he moved to foundry Foundry literary and media and now for maybe like the last four years or so he's at inkwell um, the biggest thing about inkwell for me is on the on the sort of business side of it is that they they pitch my world rights to to other you know to other countries because you know uh, Morrow only has North American rights you know, which is great you know I, I would advise for every author you should try you should give away world rights because you're giving away I don't know potentially free money not free I, I shouldn't say free money but any for, any now any foreign sale I have it goes directly to me instead of through instead of through my American publisher you know so Inkwell has their own foreign rights agents in house which is great. Um, and and my agent Steven in particular has uh, he's been great with everything. Uh, you know, he's really sort of plugged in on the film side of things too. Um, so no they, they've been wonderful to work with. Uh, you know they, you know it's not their job really to be on the publicity side of things, but what they'll tend to do is advocate for certain kinds of publicity things to happen. Although I will say um, one thing I did with Stephen and I feel like it was a one, a one shot thing. When *Cabin at the End of the World* was coming out, you know, we had a speaking blur before it was going to be published, which was different from *Ghost*. And we wanted to take advantage of that. Um, and we were thinking of different strategies that we might do to help, try to supplement, you know, what William Morrow could do too. So he did some research and he found this—he uh, found this—I don't know what we'd call it, like a, some a partnership/slash company promotional company in New York City, um, and they specialize in online media campaigns. So it was—it's not really publicity. It's a, it's a specialized thing. They weren't trying to get me interviews. It was more that they do like deep dive Facebook ads, and if you're a YA, they would do more um, Instagram, as they explained it to me. But as adult fiction, they focused more on Facebook. Um, and i would come to find out for my wife, who works in marketing for a restaurant chain, it's like, wow, you know, this guy on the book side of things was doing sort of the you know the data analysis that they do with their companies, I guess not that many people do that. And certainly the publishers don't have time to, or maybe even the bandwidth to do like the deep dive data search on like what ads work best and, you know, what tags work best. So anyway, I, I spent, I don't know, a decent size of my a, a decent chunk of my own money to pay, you know, Sullivan and partners to do like a five to six week Facebook only ad campaign for the cabinet of the world. Um, and I know that he doesn't take on anybody. Like he had to, he had to think that his ad campaign would help you because he doesn't want to like, you know, he needs to look which I totally get. Like if he doesn't think his ad campaign is going to help you, he's not going to take your money. That makes his company look bad if he takes on somebody. So anyway, uh, I think it was, I wouldn't do it every time. I think it was a special case, but for me, the money was well spent. We, I could see it in live time. We could see the click throughs. We could see, you know, who clicked on the ads and basically the ad buys who was seeing it and, and we saw the pre-orders you know go up and and i i remain convinced that that you know sort of my you know with the advice of my agent paying for something a little bit extra you know helps to get the book to squeak on to a couple of bestsellers lists yeah that's um, great yeah but it's hard but i mean because you have to you know decide to make an investment in yourself you know it's it was a lot of money i just sort of viewed it as okay here's a chunk of the advance that i got You know, it'll be a tax write off. So I could, I swallowed, that made me feel like I could swallow that part of it a little bit better. Um, You know, but the hope was it would only be worth it if we saw it in the sales. I I think we did.
2: Yeah. Well, if you can see the positive ROI, then it makes you feel a whole lot better. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I wanted to, uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about that I don't think we've touched upon yet was uh, the Shirley Jackson Awards. I wonder if maybe Mm -hmm. you could talk about your role in that and, and sort of how that came to be.
1: Sure. So, geez, was it about 2007? Uh, I had heard through the grapevine that so there used to be an award, a great award called the International Horror Guild Award. Um, yeah, I think that ran like late 90s into the you know early 2000s, and uh, I had heard through the grapevine that they were sort of closing up shop. Now it was you know it was bummed out because I thought it was healthier to have the Stoker Awards and the International Horror Guild Awards. It kind of felt like they covered, you know, there's so much different kinds of horror that's published. And that's one of the things I really love about horror is that it's such a big wide genre, you know, I don't think it's enough to have one award to cover it. Like I feel like those two did a good job of, you know, catching what the other one missed kind of thing. Um, so my friend John Langan and I actually approached the people who ran the International Horror Guild at the time and said, hey, yeah, you know, we heard that you guys were just made, might be closing shop. Uh, would you let us take it over <laughs> it was essentially sort of that kind of email they were like no you can't you know, at the time i was kind of like ah why not but i totally get it you know based on all the work that you put into something you just get two random schmoes <laughs> just coming to ask if we can take over your award so i know it was john myself uh, uh f brett cox who's a writer that lives in vermont uh, sarah langan you know the horror writer sarah Langen, who did you know audrey's door and the missing etc And uh, our friend Joanne Cox, even though there's double last names, nobody's related. (laughs) Um, You know, it was the five of us. Like, oh, if we were going to start a horror award, what would we call it? And, you know, the first one that was unanimous was the Shirley Jackson Awards. And uh, I think it was, you know, as a group, I might have been Brett reached out to the estate of Shirley Jackson through her, I think through her sons. You know, there's a lawyer that's in charge of it. And, And we wrote to them and just asked if we had permission to use her name to... You know, to call our award the Shirley jackson awards and they said yeah that'd be great so once they said that we're like oh okay i guess you know i guess we better do this then so for the first couple of years it was just us you know we were the jurors we sort of did everything but you know early on we wanted to try to make this thing something that could sustain itself in some ways so after the first two or three years the the five of us who founded it were no longer jurors and and that's been the case ever since so every year we you know, we just basically ask mostly writers, but sometimes we get editors to, to volunteer a lot of reading time to be jurors. Uh, you know, and, every, and now we're at the point where every year we get five jurors, which is a good number. And, um, you know, it's a ton of reading. And really all the credit to its continuation should really go to Joanne Cox because she does so much work on the administration side of things. She, I mean, she's really, she is the awards. Um, I feel like the rest of us, us founders who are on the board of uh, the board of directors uh, definitely don't pull our weight compared to what Joanne does, uh, which is an issue. I, you know, I think we need to sort of iron that out because I mean, all of us, you know, just get so busy, especially, you know, me now between the job and, you know, the writing stuff, it's, you know, it's hard to balance, but uh, it's been an amazing experience. I mean, to me, the coolest part is all the different kinds of writers who have been influenced or inspired by Shirley Jackson in some ways. And I'm, and I'm always surprised, you know, that, you know, here's like a straight literary writer or, you know, someone who just writes solely science fiction, but, you know, so many of them, you know, just have wonderful things to say about, you know, Shirley's work as they should. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that's been fun.
2: And I'm sure the Netflix series has rekindled some interest in Jackson's work.
1: Yeah. You know, it's fine. I mean, we're certainly not going to take any credit, but it almost feels like it's just like a piece of zeitgeist that, you know, that we started and that there did seem to be, you know, just a general, her name resurfacing into, I think partly is because, you know, the time that we live in, I think her kind of fiction fits sort of this ambiguous misinformation age that we're living through. I mean, what better stories to get you through that than reading Shirley Jackson's story?
2: Yeah, true. Well, I, I've got uh, two more questions uh, before we wrap sure. up here. This next one, I think, might be the hardest one I've asked you so far. So uh, I hope you're ready okay. for it. Uh, the, <laughs> the question is Husker do or Sugar?
1: Oh, it, it's an easy one for me. Uh, Husker do. I mean, I love Sugar, but Husker Du, <laughs> Husker du, Husker du is my first love. Uh, I mean, I do love me Sugar. and I've seen Sugar. And I never saw Husker Du live, which is a regret, but I, I've seen Sugar slash Bob Moulds, you know, mm. probably like 30 times at this point. Oh yeah. 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 Those, uh... <laughs> I'm seeing, I'm seeing him again in January. Yeah. Oh, are you? Okay.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying, like, I think uh Copper Blue and File Under Easy Listening were at one point in the early nineties. That was about all I listened to. Just nonstop. Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Actually the EP in between is still a favorite of mine and I've actually been just going through a binging of Beaster, oh, Beaster over right. and over again. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one too. Yeah. yeah.
1: Especially I, I just zero in on "Uh tilted and JC auto. If I'm ever like feeling stressed or, you know, in any way, just sort of down with what's going on. I, I always go back to those two songs and just play them like for like 10 days straight and I'm better.
2: <laughs> <laughs> nice. You can't go wrong with, uh, with Bob mold, man. He, he no, a winner all the way around. Right. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Well, the last question I got for you is one that I ask all of our guests and you can answer this however you want uh, as specific or general as you want. But, uh, Paul, what is your approach to the business of writing?
1: Um, it's funny. I would say I used to, I used to be like, you know, I'm just going to write and then let everybody else worry about the other stuff, you know? (laughs) And, and as we talked about a little bit, it's, you can't do that. I mean, I suppose you can, I guess it depends on what you want out of your career. Um, so I try, I guess what I try to do now is I'm going to write the book and then worry about the business side of it after. Like I try not to let the business side affect what's going on to the page, but I really try to make sure that I'm involved after it's on the page, if that makes sense. You know, whether that means like, you know, I'll, I talk directly to my editor. I mean, I'm I'm very fortunate that I have a great relationship with her, but I know, you know, some writers who, you know, they do everything through their agent. I just couldn't imagine doing that. Like, I don't. I mean, as much as I love my agent, like I want to, I have a question for him, I want to ask him directly. If I have a question for my editor, I want to be able to ask her directly. I mean, I, there, to me, there's value in just that sort of open exchange. Um, and even on like the film side of things, I know, I think, you know, nothing's been made. I've had a few things options. Uh, uh, and I'm sure I'm a little bit annoying <laughs> on that side of things to those people. But, you know, as soon as I, if I know who the, if they make the mistake of giving me the contact information for the producers, You know again like sometimes i'll ask my agent a question to go through them but oftentimes i'll just try to go right to the horse's mouth because again you know like i've learned the hard way that you have to advocate for yourself um even though you have like an agent that's there for you it's still i don't know i think you'll feel better about the whole process if if you put yourself into it a little bit like again i'm not a marketing expert i'm not a publicity expert um but, you know, it's good to, you know, I'm certainly not a contracts expert, too. And I should be better than I am. Um, but where I feel like I can sort of advocate for myself, I try to whenever I can. All right. That was Mr. Paul
2: Tremblay with some really great uh, pieces of advice. The, the one that really kind of shot to the top of my mind when I heard it, J.D., was the way Paul was talking about the fact that even if you have a traditional publisher or any publisher for that matter, you still have to do the marketing and promotion. I was wondering if you could maybe you know, validate that for us.
3: Yeah, you know it's it's again. I think this comes from movies and TV shows, but they always portray that author as as you know being up in a little attic room and cranking out their novel, and that's the only thing that they do. They stack up those pages next to their typewriter, and then they're done with it. They hand it off to their agent, and (laughs) something you know teams of people go out there and and handle all this stuff. Um, But that's really not the case, and and I don't think it's been like that. I know know in my experience, I've been in this industry for twenty some years, and like I don't remember it ever being that way. Um, And I I distinctly remember a conversation with Dean Koontz where. He was signing um, book plates, which are, you know, the, they stick it in the, the front cover so you can buy a signed copy of the book. Um, but he was signing, I think he said either 20,000 or 40,000 of them. Um, You know, at home over and it took him about two weeks to knock that out. Um, And I I remember him saying that he was listening to, um, I think it was Paul Simon Graceland album, like on repeat for most of it. (laughs) And then at like the last 5000 or something, he listened to the same song over and over again. And like, but you know, this is Dean Koontz and he's he's doing the same kind of stuff that the, the rest of us have to do. Um, you know, and I think that's what it really takes, takes to succeed. Like what, you know, it doesn't matter what level you are, you've got to be able to, you know, kind of figure out where, where you're needed. I know personally, when, when I have a book coming out, um, you know, the publisher, they sit down, they give you their marketing plan. Um, I usually look at that plan and I try to punch holes in it, you know, like, okay, they're doing ABC, you know, what, what can I do that they're not doing? Um, and I try to supplement that. Um, and it's a little bit of a tightrope back because I don't like to let them know exactly what I'm doing because I don't want them to, you know, like if I'm spending money on Facebook ads, I don't want them to cut their Facebook budget. Oh, you know? right. So, like, I, I tend to do a lot of those things, you know, kind of on my own. Um, but I, I think it all needs to happen. Um, Paul had mentioned bringing in a PR firm, um, which I think a lot of us have done. Um, I I did it early on uh, with Forsaken and it it didn't really work out that well for me. I I paid a, a big New York firm a lot of money. Um, and they came back and they got me like four or five blog posts and, you know, a couple mentions here or there, but you know, nothing worthwhile. Um, so I ended up going out and renegotiating deals with with actual publicists. And I've got one now that handles um, all my traditional press. And I pay her for each story that she gets. So I'm not paying her an hourly salary, or weekly or monthly or, you know, a stipend, anything like that. You know, when she gets me a story in a particular newspaper, she's got a price list in front of her. And, you know, New York Times is worth this. Washington Post is worth that. Wow. Did you um, did you come up with that
2: or is that how she? Who operates her business
3: no I, I actually sold her on it it was huh. it was somebody that i worked with years 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 back um she used to work in the music industry um out in la work you know she's a publicist for a lot of the hair bands like motley Crue and poison and bon jovi so i knew her from that world um, and i approached her with with this idea and, and it works out good for both of us because she can't really dedicate you know certain you know like she can kind of work when she wants to um and and you know that that tends to work better because um, I, I haven't had any luck with a lot of the big New York firms. and I know a lot of others, authors that have tried that. And, you know, you end up shelling out thousands of dollars in a month and, and you don't really see any real results or nothing tangible or measurable. Um, so I've got another publicist that does nothing but focus on my, my social media stuff. Um, you know, we just, we track what she does and I, and I pay her based on the actual time that she spends doing it. Um, you know, so I'm just I'm trying to feel this out, too. You know, so I think it's, it's cool to see that Paul is out there doing it. Um, I know a lot of other authors are, um, but it's, it's evolving just like everything else is.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, other other sort of uh, great takeaways or things that you've found interesting that, that Paul mentioned?
3: Uh, one of the things that I really like about Paul is when he sits down to write something, he doesn't seem to care what anybody else thinks. Um, you know, he's he's not looking at a book saying, "Okay, this is going to sell for television," like you know, because of this, or he's not writing into a particular storyline because he thinks it's going to do well. He just kind of puts the story that he wants down on paper. You know, whatever happens with it, happens with it. Um, which I think is a you know something that most authors should probably. You know that that's how they should approach their work because if your heart's not in it, you know that's obviously going to come across in the writing. Um, and it, his heart is definitely in it, you know, and I, I think that's really cool. Um, from the teaching standpoint, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. Uh, I, I know, I mean, because I mentor writers. Um, so I you know in a, in a little bit of a way I, I guess I'm teaching yeah. um, but I, I I couldn't bring myself I don't think to go into a classroom every day um, if I did I think I would have to do like what he's doing like he's teaching something unrelated completely different like, mm-hmm. yeah I, I don't think I could be a, a you know, a writing teacher, just because, you know, like when I read a book, like if the writing's not up to par with what I'm writing, I, I tend to close the cover. Like I, you know, I, I don't want that in my, my head. Um, and I don't know that I could grade, you know, students on on writing and and then sit down and write my own novel. Like the two worlds I think would just kind of fall into each other and it'd just be this big mess. And I, I don't know that I could do that. Um, but that, that to me, I mean, I, I don't know how long he plans to continue doing it. He seems to enjoy it. So right. I'm, I'm guessing he's going to keep doing it for a while. Um, but at some point, I think one of the two careers is going to end up pulling them in one direction or the other, and you might end up having to make a choice there.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, one one of the questions I know, like I know some of our listeners won't care about uh, alternative music, but uh, Bob Mould, what, what's your <laughs> thoughts on Bob Mould or Husker Du or Sugar? <laughs> any Any
3: opinions on that? I'm terrible when it comes to that stuff and oh, now yeah. That I've, yeah I mean because I, I worked, you know for RCA records years back and so I was just constantly in the middle of the the music world and like what was coming and you know well and, and I, I guess in a lot of ways I kind of got burnt out on it but now that I've got a two-year-old like I have to listen to what she wants to listen to like I don't I don't have much of a choice like last night you know, after she took a bath I listened to bye 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 and sync oh. and I think about for about 30 minutes straight on oh, repeat no. because that was the only song she wanted to hear. Um, you know, some nights it's Megan trainer. I mean, it's not stuff that I would listen to on my own. Um, but you know, I just I haven't had a whole lot of time really to to listen to music. And you know, honestly, I've fallen in love with audiobooks. You know, like a lot of the time that I used to spend listening to the radio or or listening to CDs and you know anything like that, like I spend you know listening to audiobooks now. Yeah. Um, it's very rare that I sit down and listen to music. My my wife and I will turn um you know like iHeart Radio on or something like during dinner, like that. You know, we'll tend to listen to something then. But that, that that's kind of it for me.
2: Yeah. It's funny how you go through those life stages, right? I'm sure you listened to a lot more when you were younger.
3: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Music, music you know, like I, I was looking at my, my iMatch account, like they just charged me again over at Apple and anybody who doesn't have Apple. Like if you're stuck in that world, um, you know, like you, uh, you basically copied all your CDs at some point to your Mac and then Apple, you know, puts them up in the cloud for you and they make it available for you forever. Um, but there's a price tag associated with that. I had a ton of music, um, You know, so, but I've got all these things I'm paying for now every year for Apple to store for me that I don't listen to anymore, Um, and and it's stuff that I absolutely love, but you know, it's just it's not my my focus anymore.
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that'll wrap us up for episode number seven. Uh, Looking ahead next week. We have our first primarily nonfiction author on. I think um early on you and I both said like we want to make sure that we're not only spreading it out over fiction and nonfiction writers, but writers and creatives of all kinds. So from screen, you know, screenwriters to uh people in the industry, we're we're gonna be getting all different types of guests on. And episode eight, we're welp- welcoming uh, my friend Chris Brogan, and Chris Brogan's a great guy. He, um, New York Times bestseller, he wrote Trust Agents about ten years ago, which was a really sort of a, a stellar look at uh, early internet marketing and and sort of how to be authentic there. Uh, so that's going to be a, a fun conversation. And like I said, for our listeners, it'll be our, our first uh, technically nonfiction guest.
3: Yeah, well, we've got a few of those coming up. I I know I just sent an agent your way um, that we're going to be interviewing shortly. Um, We've got some, some film and TV guys that we've got coming on. Um, so yeah, I like, I like the fact that we're mixing it up a little bit. Um, there, there's, you know, when you say, when people say they want to become a writer, you know, as a full-time career, you know, it, that doesn't necessarily mean sitting down writing a, a fiction book, you know, it, that's, it's such a wide open field. There's so many different ways to make a living as a writer. Um, and I, I definitely want to open people's eyes to, to some of that.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think there's something of value you can get from everyone who's a writer or a creative There's some, you know, listen about to their process, their experience. There's always something you can take away, regardless if you're writing the same type of stuff as they are or not.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Great. All right, man. Well, uh, have a great week and uh, we'll see you back here for episode eight and Chris Brogan.
0: Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.